Hey, you ever needed something for your home but don't have the cash or credit to pay for it? You can do that at Aaron's. Yep, you can rent to own appliances like washers, dryers, or refrigerators, furniture for your living room or bedroom, even tech. Plus, Aaron's has great brands like HP, Samsung, and Ashley. Life's always changing. Keep it, return it, upgrade it. Aaron's fits your life instead of the other way around. So check out your nearest Aaron's store or visit Aaron's.com to see what I'm talking about. Approval isn't guaranteed and some restrictions apply. You got to see your local store for details. Two-thirds of Americans are at risk of experiencing an electrical blackout. You could be one of them, sitting in the dark and cold for hours, for days, maybe even weeks. Are you ready to protect your family? You could be with the Patriot Power Solar Generator 2000X. These things are sweet because this generator has double the capacity and is expandable. Go to 4patriots.com slash meat eater to get your solar generator now. You'll even get a solar panel included free. Go to 4patriots.com slash meat eater. On X Hunt Elite is worth every penny. It really is. Every hunt, every planning session, every gear purchase, I was on it already today. With your Elite membership, you will get application and draw odd tools, exclusive pro deals on gear from the industry's best, exclusive mapping and scouting tools, and last but not least, access to nationwide coverage. And now Canada. On X Hunt Elite will make you more successful on your next next hunt try onyx hunt free for seven days or go to onyxmaps.com slash hunt and use code meat eater for 20 percent off your new elite membership this is the meat eater podcast coming at you shirtless severely bug bitten and in my case underwearless we hunt the meat eater podcast you can't predict anything. Welcome to the summer solstice. Now, in a, in a lot of indigenous cultures, tonight you would have a ceremony in order to get the sun headed back in a southerly direction. And Kevin Murphy, since we're not going to all get up and dance in a counterclockwise direction around a large sundial... Kevin Murphy is going to rip on his horn that he uses to alert squirrels to his presence, but this is going to send the sun back south, and we will be honoring the summer solstice. Hold on, Kevin, can you give us just a little more background? Because Steve didn't do it justice, did he? That you just alert squirrels? Oh, use the mic, use the mic, Kevin. Use the mic, Mike. Every hunt that I try to do, even fishing, we go out, we always sound the horn. Tell all the critters that we're coming. And it's their chance to get away. If they don't and they get killed, it's their fault. <laughs> so here we go. So you guys maybe could leave now if you wanted to. So. Let's hunt. Uh, it just so happens that three of us are from one state to the north, you guys, in Michigan. And in Michigan, we always um, look down and laugh at you guys. But it's not, it's not for what you might think, because um, 
you guys know the Toledo, the Toledo Strip? Right? So years ago, when we were trying to sort out who, what state got what chunk of ground, and we weren't quite sure how the landscape was laid out and where the lakes were. What's that doing? One that's sitting there. I don't know if I'm going to give the whole master plan. I think maybe the mic's on the background. Jake? Jake? It's gone now. Oh, it's gone. So years ago, when we were trying to figure out like what state's got what chunk of ground, right? And we weren't clear on how the lakes were shaped out. Ohio and Michigan got in this big pissing match over this little teeny five-mile-wide strip of land that now includes Toledo. And it got so bad that we each sent our you know, militaries, like state militias, to go up and get ready to square off over what became the Toledo Strip. And um, some people call it a bloodless war, but there was actually one guy whose first name was Two who stabbed another man with a penknife and drew blood on him. So it was not a bloodless war between my home state and the people of Ohio. And then they brought, some in to, they brought someone in to arbitrate the whole thing. And the person looked and says, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to give Michigan the UP, its upper peninsula, and we'll give Ohio this little strip of land. And everyone in Michigan was pissed. They thought it was a raw deal. But then all of a sudden they discovered uh, all the copper and iron ore that came out of the UP. And we realized that the last laugh was on you guys. And then if you factor in how much fish and game I pulled out of the upper peninsula over the years and factor that into all the iron ore that came out of that place, you can see that we got a pretty sweet deal. But I do now and then uh, come up into Ohio or down into Ohio, and I was going to tell about one time I came here. How many of you guys have heard of the Serpent Mound? Okay, so it's in Peebles, Ohio, and it's like you know some of the, 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 some of the Native American cultures around the turn of like the 80 years into the B.C. years were in this practice of building these large earthen effigy mounds in the shapes of animals. So there's turtles and bears and all manner of creatures. But the Serpent Mound is one of the biggest ones where they built a coiled snake that's 450 yards long. It's anywhere from a few feet high to just one feet high. People didn't even realize it was there until, you know, one day some guy started putting it together that stretching out through the landscape was this giant snake in Peebles, Ohio. And it's got a coiled tail, and its mouth is a gape. And in, in its mouth is a thing that everybody tries to debate, like what is, it, what is the thing that its mouth is wrapped around, like what does it symbolize? And some people feel that maybe it's an egg, that the snake is swallowing an egg. And some people feel that maybe the snake is swallowing the sun, and it has something to do with the solar phases. So I think that's like kind of appropriate for today, being the solstice. But one time I, was, I wanted to come up and see the Serpent Mound, and from the direction I was coming from, I was coming up from West Virginia. And I remember driving through West Virginia and saw my first ever roadkill black bear. And I was with an old girlfriend of mine. We were driving in a van that I had traded my buddy Ronnie a, a Husqvarna chainsaw and 250 bucks for. And you'd expect a van like that just to hum, right? But we, me and my old girlfriend passed, you know, come out of West Virginia and pass into Ohio. And a guy is coming up along me, and he's, like, trying to, like, gesture that something's wrong with my vehicle. And rolls his window down and yells to me that I have a taillight out. So, or or a, a blinker out. No, it's a taillight out. And we get to the first exit. Right when you leave West Virginia and you enter Ohio, we get to the first exit, and I pull off and go in there, and I go into a parts store. And I buy a bulb, and I need a Torx bit. And I try to go in and borrow a Torx bit, and he's reluctant to lend me one. Eventually, he lends me a Torx bit, and I come outside, and I'm working on the taillight, and next to me is a car wash. 
and there's some people back in the car. There's some kids vacuuming their car, and they have loud music that's profanity laced. You know, you're like a certain age and you use profanity laced, but it's profanity laced music. And there's another guy with a young kid, and the the guy takes offense to the music and starts urging them to turn down the profanity laced music. And he's using profanity to express how like displeased he is with the profanity laced music. And a kid from the car produces a pipe. So an Ohio kid produces a pipe as though he's going to confront the guy, and the guy calls his bluff and races over toward him. The kid throws down the pipe, and the guy disappears into the car from which emanates the loud profanity laced music and i'm thinking that's never gonna work out because it's always hard to figure out other people's stereo (laughs) you know so when you get to a hotel and you pick up the remote and you're like dude i'm never gonna figure this out but he's just like immediately back out of the car with the cd and throws the cd on the ground and stomps on the cd and then the other side of me they were having a cheerleader uh uh, car wash fundraiser and one of those guys must have called the police because then all of a sudden here comes a car pulls in with a siren Lights are flashing. We pull out and start driving down the road. And I'm headed to the Serpent Mound. And I make the mistake of saying to my girlfriend, you know, I can kind of see where that guy was coming from. And it just so happens that she was thinking what an asshole that guy was. <laughs> we got into such a fight that we fought all the way through our time at the Serpent Mound. And every time I'm in Ohio, I cannot come here without thinking of the Serpent Mound and that fight. <laughs> um, now, so from Michigan, and then we have Kevin Murphy from Kentucky. And I figured that we don't have anyone from Ohio, but if you average out Kevin and me, you have like an Ohioan. You know, we are holding Ohio up. It would probably fall off somewhere if it wasn't for Kentucky. So, don't, yeah, don't feel underrepresented <laughs> here by this, like, symbolic Ohioan that, that, that we think. And then Mark Kenyon from Wired Hunt Podcast. Ryan Callahan from just generally being a well-known guy and also from First Light Apparel. And then, of course, let it rip. Giannis Patelis. Giannis Patelis, the Lavian Eagle. Sorry? The Lavian Eagle Bear Beater. Uh, Mark Kenyon, you, Mark Kenyon likes to come down and hunt in Ohio all the time. But you just lost your Ohio hunting spot. Yeah, it's it's a tender wound still, so I'm not sure I'm ready to talk about it. But yeah. please, yeah, it just happened last week. I found out. Do you want to hear what happened? No, well, yeah, I want to hear like how you used to be a dude who comes down and hunts Ohio, but now you're not anymore. Because I think that that's like <laughs> that's you know people that's relevant to people. Well, right? I, I always knew I wanted to come on down to Ohio because us in Michigan. We often talk about how the grass is probably greener south of us, and I wanted to come down, but I had friends who had said that they had hunted down here with Michigan license plates and said that they would have their window smashed in, their tires cut, so I had serious apprehension about it, <laughs> but I don't like the Michigan Wolverines either. I don't know what that is. So I did start coming down hunting here probably six, seven years ago. It's been really good to me. Um, we had one small property sort of near Cincinnati. And the landowners were in their early 90s when we started hunting there. I can smell trouble already, man. Yeah. When people get that old, like, change is a brewing. Yeah. yeah. And it was, it was one of those deals where right from the get-go, we knew, okay, the clock is ticking. This isn't a long-term thing, probably. But it was so good still. We're like, well, let's just 
enjoy it while we got it. And it kept every year. We're like, ah, how's so-and-so going to be, you know, every year looking for it. And, and, and I don't want to sound like all I cared about was the hunting property. I love the hunting property, but we got to know the landowners too. Really nice people. Really nice people. Enjoy getting down there and chatting with them. And long story short, this year, finally, uh, last, last fall, I was down there and just noticed that things are going downhill. The landowner, I went, <laughs> we went down and I was heading in for a muzzleloader hunt and I got there late for the afternoon. I drove down from Michigan in a rush, wanted to try to get up for the last couple hours of daylight. And so already I'm looking at my clock. Oh gosh, I'm already running late. I pull in and I see the landowner there and he's outside of his house and always want to stop and say hi though. So I'm like, okay, you know, I'll say hi and then let him know I'm, I'm sorry. I got to kind of run. Let's catch up tomorrow or something. So I do that. I go to say hi to him and you know, he starts chatting and I don't want to be rude. So I hear him out. And then finally the conversation ends and okay, now, now I get, I'll have like one hour of hunting. It'll be okay. And as I'm walking away, I start hearing him like cursing. And I'm like, Oh no, what happened? I turn around to look and you can see him like doing this thing and look, looking around and, I'm thinking to myself, and he's standing next to his car. I think he locked his keys in his car. Well, I thought he just realized you had Michigan plates. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> no, so, so he, he had locked himself out of his vehicle, and he, there was nobody else home. There was no one around. So I ended up you know, losing that whole hunt, hung out with him for a couple hours while we waited for someone to call the tow truck and everything for him. And it was that kind of thing, though. We had a few instances like that where you just knew it was probably going to be changes coming. And yeah, a week ago, got a phone call that said, uh, we're not going to hunt anymore. They're selling it. And uh, the, the kids are taking it on and trying to get it sold. So it was a great place. Had a lot of fun. Really enjoyed getting to know the folks. They're still alive, um, but they're, they're going to be moving to nursing homes. And, um, and the death of an Ohio hunting spot. Yeah. Hold on. Are you telling me that since I locked my keys in my car last week, that I'm on the downhill slide. <laughs> that and several other factors, I think, would say that you're heading that direction, to be honest. <laughs> you know, something I wanted to ask you, Mark, is uh, we had a guy write in proposing that you like to hunt for, like, you like to look around. I hesitate to call it hunting. You like to look around out in the woods for deer antlers. Shed hunting. Laying on the ground. Shed yeah. hunting. Love it. A, a guy wrote in to ask, his que- to ask a question to say, like, he feels that there should be a bag limit on shed antlers. Like that the re- he's like, he's like, cause we have this thing. We have this thing in, in wildlife management where we have a fair use thing, right? Right. Like we spread out the resource, you know, you don't get to hog all the deer. You don't get to hog all the ducks. There's things in place. So you're allowed some number and allow other people to have more. And he was proposing like, what if we came up with this idea of having a, 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 like a shed antler season, not, we already have seasons in some states. But what if we had a thing where you were limited to how many you could have? How would you feel about it as a shed antler hunter? Short answer, I don't like it. Longer answer is bag limits and stuff. I get what you're saying from a fair use perspective, but really the reason why we have those is to maintain sustainable populations of animals. So if I go in there and pick up 100 sheds, that's not going to impact the long-term sustainability of a deer population. So I don't see that as like a viable argument. Against you're not you're spending I'm not that much it. time in the woods might be stressing out animals so so i have a question here also as far as (laughs) impact how many deer antlers have you come across that have nine chew marks on them a lot in certain places depending on the time of year but yeah a lot that's not just for taste they're not just trying that stuff out that's calcium dense bone so you're trying to tell me i've been hearing this a lot lately that people talk about what are we really what are we removing that 
raccoon populations and squirrel populations, their nutritional, the importance of shed antler stem is that significant? <laughs> I just don't see it. <laughs> but I would say that I can understand the argument that there is stress put on deer herds or elk herds or mule deer herds or whatever of people going in there too early, especially in the western states where snowpack and stuff like that does significantly impact deer. And so I understand why states like Utah and other western states are putting in seasons um, to make sure that we aren't overstressing the deer at that time of year when they are struggling the most. Or maybe even in the very furthest northern states like northern Minnesota, northern Michigan, northern Wisconsin, parts where these deer have to find yarding areas, you know, where they can only survive in certain areas to get that kind of food and shelter. Yeah, that's an argument. Um, but down here in Kentucky. Ohio. Well, sorry, yeah. <laughs> He's got me. <laughs> Kentucky, Ohio, this whole region, anywhere around here. I just don't think that the stress is that high that it is going to make a noticeable impact. But but you could get me on the seasons. But we, the yeah, bag we get limit, a lot of emails. People wonder about that. And I want maybe a, a, a size. I think there should be a bag limit and a size limit. Size limit. And a, a slot limit. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I'm joking. I don't see it as a real honest-to-goodness problem. I just, I just wanted to put it to an actual ho- uh, shed hunter yeah. hobbyist. I had my best shed hunting year ever this year. Defined by? Quantity and quality. Okay. And I found my largest shed antlers ever. Here in Ohio. So that's cool. On the on this property. Really? Yeah. Okay. Um Kevin, so if anybody has got a spot that you don't want to hunt and you want a guy to come <laughs> yeah, this, down these from are Michigan. the people to ask. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, you know, in fact I do have a large property no one's using, Mark. It's like, I know a guy. <laughs> come talk to me afterwards. It's the wrong crew, yeah. You need to go down to the Rotary Club or something and check <laughs> check down there. Kevin, can you um would you mind uh uh making some predictions this year uh, on how what the squirrel season is going to look like based on mass crop? Is it looking like a strong season? In Kentucky, we had a good carryover from uh, <clears throat> this winter. Uh, the squirrels went into uh, – we had a good, good squirrel crop coming into the season. Uh, we had limited mass. Uh, the squirrels pretty much ate everything in the woods, everything they could get their hands on to fatten up. They were mud ball fat and uh, they had limited activity throughout the winter time. Uh, their activity pretty much from the uh, um, 30 minutes at daylight, 30 minutes at dark. Uh, into the season, uh, very, very little movement. Towards the end of the season, when the elm buds start coming out, water maples, squirrels would feed prolific during the day. And you could go in and get harvest a limit of, of squirrels. Uh, we had a very unusual winter in Kentucky this year, probably like the worst in 40 years. A lot of 40-year-old people had never seen a winter like we had. The ice froze about nine inches. I had to chop ice for the horses. Uh, it kind of shut me down. I got acclimated to hunting in 20 and 30 degrees winter. Uh, when it got below zero and negative wind chill, we just shut down, but eventually we got tired of sitting in the house and we started getting out and we started killing rabbits. The, we didn't even attempt to kill any squirrels. Um, but I got to thinking back in the 70s and 80s, we hunted like that when it was that cold. Um, so we had a late spring. It was snowing during turkey season. Uh, had some late freezes, but due to this unusual winter we had, the oak trees did not uh, bud out. And when we did have those late freezes, they did not freeze the buds on them. 
and we came through the winter time with a good, healthy oak population. Uh, I've looked at the fruit trees, the mulberries, uh, pretty good crop. Uh, uh, the uh, cherry trees at my house, the blueberries, uh, it, it did catch the plums. But from what I'm seeing, got uh, three pretty good size uh, uh, pecan trees in my uh, yard. And the Caspians on them, they're, they're full. They got a lot of small pecans on them, so I'm predicting uh, a, a, a good, solid squirrel crop in the state of Kentucky in the western region where I, where I live. If these guys are lucky, it'll mm-hmm. drift into Ohio. Are you familiar with the, are you familiar with the phenomenon? Phenomena? What do you say? Phenomena is plural, right? No, phenomenon. Either way. A weird thing happening where have you ever heard of a great the great people say the great squirrel migration it is not a migration it's a dispersal an emigration but you've heard of this before yes because ohio had one in 1811 where there would there gets to be this thing where you develop overwhelming numbers of gray squirrels i don't know if it can happen anymore because we've carved up the woods so bad. But you develop overwhelming numbers of squirrels, and then you have a mast crop failure, and the squirrels disperse. I used to think that this was a lie when people talk about the great, the great squirrel migration. But in 1968, they had, a, they had another the great squirrel migration. And there was one in my own lifetime that happened in 1998. Have you ever experienced? 1968, uh, <clears throat> North Carolina, Tennessee had a mass failure. The squirrels migrated north through Tennessee, through the south end of Land Between Lakes, 170,000 acres. They came across. I didn't hunt much then at all. My dad, avid squirrel hunter, he'd take her squirrel dog over there. Of course, I was in school a lot. And he said the dog might tree one squirrel and then three or four come by on the ground. You know, he'd shoot them. I remember hundreds it, drowning <laughs> in the lakes, riverbanks full of dead squirrels. Yes, the crappie fishermen would be out there uh, fishing for crappie, Lake Barkley over a mile wide. Squirrels be coming by. They would just take a dip net, dip them up. And uh, so I have witnessed that. I have witnessed some minor migrations. Um, probably right around the late 90s, uh, drove from uh, Paducah to Louisville. It's about a three-and-a-half-hour drive. There was one stretch of about 100 miles between there that I counted over 100 dead squirrels on a four-lane highway. That's, that's not normal, folks. I mean, you just don't see a squirrel ran over on a four-lane. And... Uh, Made a trip. Uh, I was basically going to um, a ball game up in Cincinnati to take my kids. And made a trip uh, like a week later uh, down to Nashville. And there was a stretch of, of, of uh, I-24 down through there that I counted 54 squirrels dead on the highway. You know, I get kind of bored sometimes driving down the highway. <laughs> so, you know, I'll, I'll start looking at animals and, and seeing what's going on and really, really not pay a lot of attention to what's in front of me or behind me. But Yeah, uh, when, when someone uh, wrote in to ask if the great squirrel migrations are true, and I would always thought they were not true, I started reading about it and read about a man that this article described as a, as a budding squirrel expert, which is not something you've seen thrown around very often. 
Like, he's not quite a squirrel expert, but he's emerging as a squirrel expert. You know, I've done a little reading on this, and I forgot where the article was, but sometimes there was still food in the area, but they didn't know if it was because they had so many squirrels and they had infestation of, of fleas and vermin in their nest, and so they left that area to get away from those. That's just one thing that I read. Of course, you know, we can read anything anytime we want to right now, but that was from some text, and I don't remember exactly where that came from. I think we've all been doing a little reading on this because it kind of bounced around some emails, and, and I started looking into it. And back in the 1800s, like you mentioned, there were a, a number of these supposed events, and John James Audubon, you know, famous naturalist, had observed this, what they thought were millions of squirrels over the course of weeks. And I believe it was crossing either the Ohio River or the Mississippi River. And they saw this, and the behavior was so bizarre, and they saw it for so long, that they, they proposed, actually, that this was a different species of squirrel entirely from the I mean, gray Yeah, squirrel. a migratory. Yeah. So they started calling it the, I mean, it was like the Securius Migratorius, or something like that, is what they thought this thing was. And it even happened uh, at the beginning of the Lewis and Clark expedition. Meriwether Lewis saw this happening crossing the Ohio River when they were coming down, heading towards St. Louis. Yeah, and I usually disregard old-timey accounts of freakish stuff because they just had a weird way of explaining things, you know? Or, or, or it's like you can't, you can't tell like the, where the mythology ends. Yeah. You know, that like Simon Kenton, um, Simon Kenton, and, you know, f- figures he saw around, I think it was 10,000 buffalo around Nashville, right? You hear that, you're like, it's just impossible to picture, Right. But the 68 one is like the 68 great squirrel migration is really well documented. Just, you know, just the image of drowned squirrels. We once rescued one out of the Yellowstone. He was such a sad looking critter, you know. Another, uh, while I have you, Kevin, another squirrel question I wanted to ask you about. Do you remember a few years ago? Oh, please. Yeah, go ahead. I'd like to know just from a sound of whoops how many uh, squirrel hunters we have in the audience to see if this is a whoop. <laughs> Really Very good. relevant information. Then how many of you see? How many of you witnessed a squirrel migration? A great, the great squirrel migration. Nobody. How many of you have uh, squirrel meat in your freezer right now? <laughs> oh, all right, real deal. Kevin, can you break down for me? Um, like, do you remember a few years ago it kind of became like a thing people talk about? Like, you remember when like noodling became like? Ricard Bilger, I think, started people like the media celebrating noodling for catfish, right? It was something that had always been around, but all of a sudden it entered the popular imagination and became like a thing, right? A thing beside, no, a thing that was known about outside of people who already naturally knew about it. Do you remember a few years ago when it be, there became this big conversation about eating squirrel brains? Uh, very much. Lay that out for me. <laughs> Make life insurance part of your financial planning this year. Start shopping now with Policy Genius to find the right policy to protect your family. Getting life insurance today means you'll have peace of mind so that if something were to happen to you, your family can cover expenses while getting back on their feet. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. They work for you, not the insurance companies. That means they don't have an incentive to recommend one insurer over another so you can trust their guidance. No wonder they have thousands of five-star reviews on Google and Trustpilot. Save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using 
Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Have you ever wondered if you could like pull off cowboy boots? Then you should pull on a pair of Tacovas. You will see. They'll become your new favorite footwear. Now we're going to throw it to Chili. If you know him, he is a cowboy boot aficionado. Dude don't like to cross the street without his cowboy boots on. Hear him out. People want to know when to wear Tacovas. Date night. Now, I'm not a very fancy guy, but when I put my Tacovas on, I feel very fancy, and my girlfriend seems to like them too. Now, if you can't make it into a store, Tacovas delivers the most premium quality and most comfortable Western goods right to your door. Visit Tacovas.com. That's T E C O V A S.com and point your toes west as a special opportunity for our listeners. Tacovas has said they will throw in one of their best selling trucker hats or ball caps for free into any minimum purchase of $100 on Tacovas.com. Just use code MEATEATER at checkout. That's about a $30 value, and they sell fast, so they're always updating with new styles and looks. Again, for a limited time, enter code MEATEATER at checkout to add a free logo hat to your order as a one-time gift from Tacovas. only at Tacovas.com. Are you looking for relentless performance for your firearms? If so, Riptide Armory is the ultimate destination for superior gun cleaning and protection. Riptide Armory offers American-made innovative products out of Arvada, Colorado. Whether it's the delicate finish of a collectible or the rugged exterior of a tactical weapon, you can clean without risk of damage. Visit RiptideArmory.com and discover the difference true quality can make for your firearms. Riptide Armory, a veteran-founded business. Well, it was... Do you eat squirrel brains? No, no, I do not. I do not. not. My background is in water, wastewater. I ran uh, wastewater plants for 20 years. Uh, Got interested in pathogens, HIV, hepatitis, hepatitis C. I had 30 guys working for me. I was working out in the, in the sewer system also. Uh, it was, I wanted to know what's going on. Uh, that was when the AIDS epidemic was going around. And uh, I would read what I could. Um, and I was in a bookstore uh, one day, and there was a book called Deadly Feast. And it was by Richard Rhodes, and he's the man that wrote The Making of the Atomic Bomb. And, of course, the book was only $5. I skimmed through it real quick, said, I'm going to buy this baby. So I took it home and started reading it. And it was about a scientist that found the, 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 the Crutchfield-Jacobs disease or something like that in the humans. Um, but uh, he went down to New Guinea to study a tribe of, of people down there and the children and the women were coming down with tremor disease and they would shake and die the, uh, the men did not have this disease and he sat down and he was studying that tribe trying to figure out um, what was going on and he read a lot of technical journals uh, about human beings and people like sniffing gold dust and it would go and deposit in certain locations in your brain um, he read one article where a scientist trained 
these uh, tapeworms, roundworms, to run a maze. You know, we all think of something, a maze, being complicated. And I just kind of, kind of said, well, it's probably just like a real simple maze, you know, from point A to point B to eat this food. Well, for some reason, I don't know what the scientist was doing, he took those, those worms that, that he trained to run the maze, he killed them, ground them up, fed them to worms that never ran the maze, the worms could run the maze. Come on. Yes, read the book. And, <laughs> and, and from that, the, uh, the scientists knew that the, the, uh, uh, the people from New Guinea, they had a practice where they practiced cannibalism, not for uh, uh, defensive measures or trying to kill their enemies, whatever, but to celebrate life. They thought if they ate one of the elders that had passed on, that they would live in their body and go on. The, the men got all the choice pieces of, of meat, and you women got the organs and the, the lesser desirable quantities of meat, uh, such as the children there. So they were eating the brain and the heart and, and those. And so he figured out there that, that that was a transfer of the brain matter after they would eat it, go in, and that's where the, the, the tremor disease, the mad cow, the human version, the Crutchfield-Jacobs disease was coming into their their um, society. So he got them to stop uh, doing that part of it. I don't know exactly how that went. It's been a pretty good while since I read that book. Um, but um, there was a number of articles, and it, it seemed like it was like a year or two ago, I went back and looked at some of those things. And there was a, two or three families in, in Kentucky, and I have eaten squirrel brains, but uh, it was just one of those things that after I read that, read that book, and looked at a little research, and there was nothing definite about that um, happening, but they did see that's the common thread that those two or three families had, that they did consume some squirrel brains. So I, I don't eat any type of, 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 of brain matter whatsoever. Um, uh, I was at a convention down in Houston I guess it's about uh, 1999, 2000, and there was a young engineer from uh, Britain there, and it was a water wastewater thing. We went out to eat with a with a vendor, ordered me a big steak, and then he said, "Aren't you worried about BVI?" And that is the human version of, of the mad cow disease. And started to talking to him about it, and 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 in the book also, I don't know if it's that same book or another book. Uh, it came into our system after World War II, and we started doing factory farming, we started uh, feeding tankage to cattle. Tankage is dead animals that they would go around from farms and pick up, you know, nothing but pretty much pure protein. So they would feed it to the cattles over in, in England and France, and that's when they started coming down, got into their system over there, uh, the cattle, and they would call it the tractor disease. Uh, they were supposed to report it to the authorities, but... When their cattle come down with it, they went and got a tractor, shot them in the head, drug them off, and buried them where they wouldn't have to kill their whole whole herd over there. Uh, you see it in cattle. Sheep is called scrapies in there. Uh, hogs, I know. It, I don't think it, it's got to it's gotta have a gestation period of, of several years out there. It's caused from a prion. You can put something contaminated with prions in an autoclave and autoclave will not kill it. So a prion is very, very hard to kill. But 
you know, do not eat any brain matter of, of any kind. <laughs> that, that's all it took to turn you off on it? Yeah. <laughs> I have a uh, question in here, too. Please, Before look, we get look. off the squirrel subject. No, I was ready to move on from squirrels, but go ahead. Oh, can I jump in? Please, here? yeah. Um, you, Kevin Murphy, are a not just a squirrel shooter. You're not just a trigger man, right? You're a uh, squirrel hunter. Correct? Yes. So you observe squirrels. Yes. More more yes. carefully yes. than any man yes. you've ever met. Yes. And you just told us that you watch them throughout hunting season, you watch them throughout the winter, you see what happens in the spring. Correct? Correct. This is, are, are you part lawyer or <laughs> where, where is this lady? <laughs> in your observations, does intense squirrel activity in the fall relate to a heavy winter? Oh, you mean like in a predictive fashion? In a predictive fashion. Like a farmer's almanac, Kevin Murphy's farmer's almanac by a squirrel. Uh, Bearing in mind, Kevin, that I am looking to get off the squirrel subject. uh, (laughs) (laughs) No. (laughs) That's all I want to know. Oh, you know, I can't get off the squirrel subject because I have one last thing. It's like the, Montana. This, I, I, I'm sure that's an old man thing, old codger thing uh, all over the place. Yeah, the, 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 they, they know it's coming. Yeah. Right, so like it's, they're it's building that, they're making It's caches. beautiful to imagine. It, it beautiful is. to imagine. Let, let me go back to that. It, it's not <laughs> maybe not squirrel activity, but like, like I said earlier, I, I looked at the squirrels that we were killing in uh, late November, early December, and they were mud ball fat. I mean, mud ball fat. So explain, I knew it's when you got to wipe your hands fat. on your pants oh, it, to finish skinning the squirrel. Yes. So I where mean, does the saying come from? What saying? Like, mud ball fat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. What does that mean? That I mean, means, I knew what it meant, but I don't know why it means that. It sounds good. <laughs> All right, they were lard fat. How's that sound? Butterball fat, mudball yeah. fat. But but I have noticed that 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 when they when they come, you know, like I said, two kind of two two things are going on. There, there's not an, enough food to get them through the the winter time, so they're out there eating everything. And another observation that I made one year is that we had the locusts come out, and we had somewhat of a a mass failure that year. Of course, they come out late August, whatever. But I never saw a squirrel eat a locust, but I know that that's what they were eating because they were as fat as I'd ever seen any squirrel in my life. But they were consuming the locusts. You know, a, a squirrel supposedly practices cannibalism, go into a nest and, 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 and eat bird eggs, uh, eat young birds. Uh, they're a rodent, and we all know what rodents do. They eat. Uh, so there's some observations I, I have made as far as squirrel activity, bearing nuts and things of that nature, you know, I'm out killing stuff. I'm not waiting two days watching an elk or whatever. So, so that type of observation to see what squirrels do over eight hours, that's not in my DNA. <laughs> <laughs> All right, now officially moving on. Um, someone wrote in and asked a question that I just don't understand. I know that we struggle with it. And he was saying, Giannis and I just had a confusion around this the other day on the phone. He was saying, um... Why do people say a half turkey breast? 
Meaning, right, if I told you that I was out in the woods and I found half of a man's breast, right, what is the image you get in your mind? Not this, right, but half. So why do people, all, like, when you, when you clean a turkey, okay, you, you cut off, he's saying, when you clean a turkey, is it, do both parts, is that the breast? Are both parts. So a half breast is half of all, or is a half breast when you cut it in half? And I honestly do not know the answer to this. Do you understand what I'm saying? I understand. It's half of the entire breast. It was it wasn't yeah, it was my buddy Tommy Edson. He was saying he's having his daughter's graduation party at which he would like to cook turkeys. And I said, So take half a breast. He's like, you mean cut the thing in half? I'm like, no, you know, half a breast. Like, Bisect so you say that. the chest. I don't know what I mean. Because yeah, then I, I realize that I say it, but I don't know. I say it both ways. I don't know what I mean. I mean, he's like, I think the turkey's breast is the whole damn deal. Mm. Cut directly down the sternum. Bisect the breast. So to you, a half breasts. breast would be one of those Correct. cut in half. And a breast would be like what I imagine on a human being, not cut in half. No, Cal's calling the whole thing one breast. Yeah. yeah when we're, like the breast region. Both sides. Yes. The, the breast in its entirety. You're wrong. And when <laughs> you say a half breast. No one says that. You'd say, take out, like, I'm messing with what I said. I said, take out, no, I did say half a breast. Meaning... Yeah, you just got confused in the moment. That's all. Yeah, but no, because this guy's confused about it. So it's not like it's just me. He's confused about it. I'm moving on to something else. Does anybody have anything to add about this? I don't. He's confusing me, and it made me more confused. But Kevin, <laughs> I got another one for you. Up here? Kevin, I'm going to hit you with another one, Kevin. Um, have you, uh, a guy wants to know, and I, I don't have enough uh, authority in this to ask. Do uh, rattlesnakes kill dogs? Yeah, right? Yes. If they zap them on the throat or nose. You know, a big diamondback packs a punch in there. So I would think a big diamondback could could kill a dog. Now, copperhead is our main poison snake in Kentucky. Third, third most prevalent snake out there. I've had numerous dogs bit by copperheads. And just like Steve said... Um, if they get bit in the throat, that area of the snake bite is not what really kills them. It's the swelling from the snake bite. Uh, if they get bit uh, um, anywhere else, it swells up. I never take them to the, to the vet on that part. Uh, we were hunting one year, January, LBL, uh, out on a point, And it had been cold. It warmed up, got sunny. And my, one of my best squirrel dogs came in there after it treated squirrel and got to looking at it, and its front left shoulder swelled up like a country ham. And the best thing that I could uh, – <laughs> do you like that? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's Steve's favorite meat, country ham. So if you guys want to send him a present, he really likes country ham. But uh, uh, it, it swelled up, I mean, like four times its size. 
but my experience with numerous dogs throughout my lifetime, the copperhead, like I said, unless it beat, uh, bites a dog in the, the, the throat or whatever and it has some swelling, um, you're going to be okay. I mean, you know, take your dog to the vet, let them look at it, whatever. But like I said, my hunting dogs, I pretty much just let them, let them ride it out just like a bee sting or whatever. But my experience with, uh, with the rattlesnakes, I can't really answer that. You know, we've got some timber rattlers in our area, but I do know that, that, that they are pretty brutal. Uh, we've got cotton mouse also in there that have like a neurotoxin in there. So I think they have some, some flesh degradation when they get beat a bit, bit by the dog. But uh, the copperhead being a poison snake, I'm, I'm not too concerned if I do have a dog bit by a copperhead. Okay, so I'm going to tell this dude, just don't worry about it. Hope he's listening right now. Uh, Mark, in our home state, right, it's illegal to shoot a piebald. Or is it still illegal in Michigan to shoot an, a piebald or albino deer? I'm pretty sure not because... It was when I was a boy. Because, and I, I don't know this because I know the actual regulation, but I remember a few years ago, somebody, in, a kid in Michigan shot, I believe it was a piebald, and it went viral, and there was all sorts of Facebook hate mail and stuff like that and death threats. Really? And I remember people writing, some blogger or writer, writing like in defense of the kid and stuff. So I'm, don't, I'm not 100%, but I'm 99% well, sure. Well, that's because what the question was that someone had is like, why is it, he's like, why is it unethical to shoot an albino or piebald deer? And it's like, I didn't know that it was, like, why does that make, because it's an oddity? That you remove, yeah. you re, you've removed this freakish thing, and now you're a bad person? I don't know if that feedback's coming from hunters, but I think that maybe non-hunters view it as something extra special, a character almost. You know, once you have this unique feature, then you can personalize that animal probably. Oh, this is that Bob, the white deer that we saw in the neighborhood or something like that, and then all of a sudden becomes something that emotions can get wrapped around. Yeah, he becomes like Petals the Bear. Exactly. From New Jersey. Exactly. But, I mean, I don't, I don't know many hunters who have a vehement position on it. I, I personally wouldn't go out of my way to target a piebald or albino deer. Like it wouldn't be a thing like, oh wow, I really want to go after that deer. Um if you had I a ten point rack though, then you would. Well I don't yeah, I don't know I don't know what I would do. For for whatever reason, I don't really I don't know. I feel like it would just I would be maybe maybe I even as I'm talking through this, I might be struck with the rarity of it and just be like, wow, that is really cool. I don't want to see that end. That's yeah. I, I think feel the more like I say, it, I don't think I would. I don't think I would shoot it. It was annoying to me when you couldn't, because I remember thinking like, because piebald means just patches of albinism, right? Like, mm-hmm. like not patches, but patches of whiteness. Yes. So when it was illegal to shoot one, because I think it came from a case where there was one that was well known only because he was identifiable. So he didn't blend into the normal general dearness of deer, yep. and he was distinguishable. And so then when someone killed him, people were pissed because they they knew that one. Yep. But I remember thinking like. Well, if it, what if its patch is only on the side that's facing away from you? Where You're you inviting someone to all of a sudden like accidentally be a a internet pariah. Yeah. If yeah. you were to to have the audacity to put a picture up, but if I was looking at one like two standing next to each other and one had that characteristic, I would be like not drawn to the to the one with the recognizable yeah. characteristic. Yeah, I agree. But I wouldn't like look down on someone who did want to take that deer. That's their prerogative. I want to because I feel like you guys weren't getting me. I want to return to this turkey breast thing now that I'm looking at the actual thing. This I agree. Guy, okay, this guy is writing in because him and his father are in a fight. They're in a fight. He says we are in a disagreement on the subject. It is my belief that a turkey breast is comprised of two parts. 
that you cut out, and these two parts are each classified as one turkey breast, each once. And you slice them in half, you have half a turkey breast. My dad, on the other hand, wholeheartedly disagrees with me. He said that a turkey breast is one whole thing. So it is a real issue tearing a father and son apart. Here's how I think, Steve, I think that you can, right here, how do you remove a turkey breast? Is it a one-part procedure, or do you take out two things? You, two. Can't, you can't take it out as one whole piece. Those two. are two separate breasts. Okay, moving on. Big question from a dude named Matt. Now, Matt wants to know this. Is it okay, and this is a hot, this is more hot, this is an actual problem. This isn't like how many breasts are on turkey. This is an actual problem. Why is it okay? Why, why does everyone say it's not okay, but actually seems to be okay, that you could thaw meat out and refreeze it? That's a big no-no. But I don't understand the no-no-ness. Totally fine. Yes. This is a question that we get often. Do you follow what I'm saying? Who's yeah, saying no, no, and why? It's just a thing. Like if you go and ask like an actual real chef who deals with actual real ingredients, he would tell you that it's a big no, no because the, when, when it freezes. Well, you're gonna you're gonna tell me why? Yeah, I think there's a couple of reasons. Oh, okay. why'd you just ask me? Well, no, just because I want to get the context. Oh, see okay, what please. They're, what they're saying about it, but I would say it's probably not so much that uh, the freezing and thawing that it's going through, although that might deteriorate the meat as well. But meat's probably spending more time in the <clears throat> food danger zone. And so you're just inviting, there's like more opportunity to have bacteria and stuff grow and, and probably get sick from it. And so you probably just don't want to be letting that meat go back and forth through that, you know, s- space of, you know, temperatures. So I, I guess if you did it under controlled, real controlled circumstances and never let it get out of, you know, whatever, above 40 degrees, probably wouldn't be that big of a deal. I thought it had to do with water loss. Which kind of doesn't make sense. Well, I think what it has to do with is, is water. But uh, what I, it's the water freezing, breaking down the cell tissue. That's what I was going to get into all that crap. Yeah. Yeah, and then you could come up with like some mushy meat. Right? So, so you're doing it multiple times. Fracturing cell walls. Because you ever notice when you freeze something, thaw it out. It's like, where'd all that water come? Like, right? You get that, like, that watery, bloody thing, because all that water comes out of there. Had you never frozen, hadn't done that. I mean, you, you know the thing I'm talking about, right? When you, like, just pull out a roast and throw it on a plate, the yeah. water comes. Yes. And, but and many, doing many it times, times, like, I'm digging through the freezer, and my stomach gets bigger than my brain, and I pull out more than I can possibly feed anybody that week, and I'm... I got to take off again, so I'd, I'm like, oh, yeah, chuck her back in the freezer, whatever I don't get to, you know. Yeah. And I've never had any ill effects. Yeah, that, that's why I feel like it's not a problem, because what we'll do oftentimes, is, especially if you're traveling, is we'll hunt, bone something out, put it in gallon-sized Ziploc bags, freeze it. Then you come home, you got a total mess on your hands. You got to thaw the thing back out, sort it out, process it properly, grind it if it's burger, trim it, part it out, refreeze it, and then people act like you've just committed like the cardinal sin of meat handling. Would it be fair to say that's not the ideal scenario, but it's yes. not the end of the world? Probably. So I have an interesting but, yeah, scenario but, playing out in my refrigerator in the garage right now. Okay. <laughs> uh, down in Texas a couple weeks ago, and of course, like, I kill a deer, the, this 
uh, axis here, which is pretty neat. Uh, the last day that we were there, last morning that we were there, 105 degrees. So uh, we get it into a walk-in refrigerator. I break it down into general big pieces uh, for travel and to let it cool out as much as possible. We hang out there as long as possible, let things cool down. Stuff everything in a big ass cooler, pile ice on top of it, drive four hours, pull things back out of the cooler, stuff it into smaller coolers. Things are pretty darn chilled down now. And then, you know, walk onto the plane and fly basically like an eight hour day back to my house at that point. Um, pull the big pieces back out, put them on the racks in my refrigerator. And I've let them go a little over two weeks now. You age Yes. Because there was no opportunity for that meat to rest. Now, sun, Sunday night, I took a loin, and I never let loins age like that because there's meat loss and it's not that big of a loin. But uh, I had a really nice uh, sharp filet knife and basically cut like prosciutto-sized cuts off the outside of that loin. And it was fantastic. And I'm intending on processing all that meat when I get back uh, from this trip. Tomorrow. I'll be processing meat tomorrow night. You should just leave it in there and feed off it now. But, you know, now I have, like, big hams left. Yeah. And I'm not going to be able to eat through that. Yeah, let's tell them about the Audet piece of meat we ate. Remember that? Yeah. Sorry, I, I was I was also thinking about that someone else. Our buddy Mike Rule uh, aged some. Uh, is it Oryx? I was telling you about. Yeah. yeah, the same way that you did. I think he did eight weeks in a fridge, no fan. Just got, it keeps it at like thirty nine degrees. But it can't be sitting on it. Everything's like up yeah, on the rack. He had it hanging. Yeah. We ate all that meat that had hung for eighteen months in the fridge. Whoa! And it was like highly controlled. High, yeah, very temperature and humidity controlled. And it was like eating blue cheese. It tasted like cheese. It was good, though. It was like, good. Dude, the, was thing, good. the only negative about it, the only negative about it is, so you got this thing, it's like this thick, right? After 18 months, there's, there's, you know. It's a, like a tenderloin on the inside that you yeah. can eat. Yeah. All the rest is just dried out, and all you have left is this little inside soft, bit of like a block of blue cheese hiding inside that leg was it ultra rich like oh blue my cheese? god it was pungent rich it was like if you told me it was meat flavored cheese you know they, they so make were you cheese like, like second guessing your next bite to where you're like boy that was really good but i don't know if i could handle the next one. i fully expected to get sick not from the flavor. Not from the flavor. I was like, there's no way. That just seemed like one of those things that later you're like, holy shit. Like, what was I thinking? It just seemed like, <laughs> like you were entering. Did you get that feeling? Like you were entering the territory of like irresponsibility. Well, yeah. The outside was c- kind of like rainbow colored, wasn't it? <laughs> I mean, it was mostly white, but there was definitely patches of different colors of fuzzy S- stuff. Steve? Yeah? Did you run out of Hall's cough drops? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> No, we were in a, we were well fed inside a restaurant. Yeah. And uh, but my old man would talk about when I was a little kid, my old man would talk about hanging deer, white tailed deer, until they had, he would say, a quarter inch of green mold was the indicator they would use that it was now time. That green. Quarter inch 
of green mold. The mold you don't want, black, no, black fuzzy mold is bad. But he would say a quarter inch of green mold. These had white mold on them. Yeah. yeah. I wish he had pictures of that. We do, I think. Yeah. Do we have pictures of that? Yeah. He snaps. Yeah. Green. No. White. Yeah, white. I'm just saying what my old man said. And he's like, you know, gone now and was had some questionable bits of information. I mean, now and then, you know, but that's something that he would talk about is like, you know, doing that. Hanging it that long. I will say this access here was absolutely fantastic. <coughs> it's one of the better deer running around out, out in the woods for sure, yeah. Yeah, or in, the, I, in the I desert. Feel like the resting period was critical to this because there was, like there was no cheese here. That's nice. What I might do now, since it's going to break it down some more, that old tough cow I've been chewing on for the last five, six months, I might just thaw her the whole thing out. And freeze it. it. No, and then just freeze it again. Oh, if, if, ten, if, if, yeah, if, if, that, if that's what's happening. Strategy. Yeah. I'll report back. But I am into what I am into that I, that I don't hear people talk about is just like is like what you're saying, like just like standard fridge aging of game meat, meaning just like set it in your fridge. You have to trim the outside away. But I think that people worry too much about aging stuff. Like, what's the I mean, the worst case scenario? You, know what was really interesting you get a teeny bit sick. I was cooking this stuff <laughs> over at uh, my buddy Zach's house, and I went. I got a brand new Ziploc bag and went out there to throw this loin in the Ziploc bag and realized that it would just be a, I'd just be getting the Ziploc bag totally dirty for no reason. Like it has such a rind on the meat that I could have thrown it on the hood of my truck and driven it across town. Yeah, they become and there durable. There would be no ill effects. Yeah. So that, I mean, think about it. Save you some cash. <laughs> Uh, I, I got another ethics one. A couple ethics ones. Um, a guy wrote in, and he has, one time he, he has one complaint about listening to the show. Is he used to listen to it. Then he got his friends listening to the show, and now he can't talk about what he heard on the show as though it was something that he just natively knew. <laughs> because they'll be like, dude, you didn't know that. I just heard that too. So he's bummed that he told anyone because he just liked to act like he just knew stuff that he had to find out about somehow but he's talking about so he's hunting right and he's he's i don't know what state he no he's in texas lives in texas and he's hunting and a doe and a yearling came up and i think he's not talking about a yearling because they're together so people say yearling but it's not really a yearling if you're hunting in the fall it's a what why do people people still still like always say that right it's like it's eight months old yeah born six born born that year yeah, born that spring, a deer of the year. So a doe and a yearling buck come into his feeder. He passes on the thing, passes on the doe because he would have felt guilty about orphaning a yearling. And he wants to know what are y'all's thought on this? Because his buddies ripped him a new one over it, saying doesn't matter. I think from a management standpoint, from a like, well-being of the deer herd perspective, doesn't matter. From the well-being of the deer herd. I agree. From everything I've read and heard and talked to biologists about it, those 
deer of the year, those fawns, at that, by the time hunting season rolls around, they are, they are biologically capable of surviving. And the, typically, from what I understand, they get picked up by the rest of the doe family group that they're hanging out with or the nearest adjacent doe family group, and they continue on just fine. So from a biological or management perspective, yeah. I personally... It's heartrending. <laughs> I've, I've, I've like flip-flopped on it lots. Like I've had days where I've been out there sitting and I wanted to kill a doe and I had a doe and fawns come out. And I would just sit there and be like, do I want to? Do I not want to? No, I don't want to. And then I've had other days where I, yeah, I got to get that doe. And, 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 but in my head, you would still have that sense of, yeah, it's, you know, you get into all like the, the ethics and morals and the, the whys and hows of what we do stuff. And that, that's like murky, sticky, swampy territory. And I think all of us have a different thought process there. Like, you shoot the fawn. The fawn has the least likelihood of surviving to maturity and producing more deer. Well, that's that, let's think about our goals. In most of the Midwest, in Ohio and Michigan, we, we actually want to lower deer populations. So we have issues where actually the, the smarter decision from a management perspective is to take that mature doe it's more likely to have future fawns and, you know, because we've got too high of deer populations. Yeah, because you, you have states that are trying to bend over backwards to encourage people to yep. take some step toward lowering deer numbers. Like in Wisconsin, there's areas you can't shoot a buck until you shoot a doe. You have to shoot a doe to get a buck tag. That's how serious they are about shooting does. But still, for me, like from the, like, so, like the whole, like just the Bambi angle on it, um... Yeah, I would shoot the other one. You Which shoot, is awful. You shoot the fawn. Yeah, yeah. I don't know why. See, I would feel worse. About, I would feel worse about shooting the fawn than the than the than the doe. There are management areas in uh, British Columbia. You you hunted in one uh, where they actually have half loose seasons. So it's not a not a antlerless. It is a half season. Now, right, think this through. You have a calf that a mature animal is caring for, in addition to themselves, going into the hardest time of year. The mature animal can produce one or two more of those, ideally, the next breeding season. So, you, I mean, it's absolutely no different than, you know, our. Uh, agricultural system, right? You got a cow that produces calves, you sell the calves and keep the cow. Yeah, I never thought about that. People look down on a hunter for doing that, but when you go to a restaurant, dude, that's all you're eating. That is all you're eating. Babies. <laughs> <laughs> it is, it's one of those weird things, it's one of those weird things where it's like, on one hand, you want to be all, uh, you want to sit back and look at it all with sort of this perspective of like, you know, herd management, longevity, management goals. But you're always thrust in these situations where you can't divorce yourself from just these kind of like just basic, you know, these kind of like basic native feelings of, of, of like kind of like misplaced empathy, I guess. You know, I remember being stuck in that situation all the time, bow hunting. And yeah, I would never want to do that. Be like, oh, it's horrible to do that. And then, and then like shoot the little one, which is distasteful as well. But yeah, and the industrial egg situation, that's all it is. 
I would just say that I don't think personally that there's a right or wrong answer to that. I understand both sides of it. And I my, myself, like I just said, sometimes have, have no, I don't want to shoot that deer. And sometimes I have, but I don't think it's misplaced empathy in that. I think it having some kind of sense of empathy around what we do as hunters, not saying it doesn't mean we don't kill deer or elk or whatever, but at least having some sense of that, I think is maybe a healthy thing to, to temper what we're doing and, and to be at least thoughtful about it. Um, how that actually plays out in the field is going to be different for everyone. But I, w- I would just say, like, meh. I mean, I don't think it's a bad thing that we think about this stuff. It, it's an acknowledgement that you're, ga- you're engaged in something seriously, and it plays out like it's a light. You're dealing with, like, lives and death. Most serious thing there is. This guy also says Tony Sachery is way better in Old Bay, Giannis. <laughs> I just, <laughs> I hold to that, that they're different. That's all. Okay, here, oh. C- completely anecdotal though. Please, yeah, go Speaking ahead. of the uh, calf being picked up by the rest of the herd, I had a hunter once that on open morning, he killed the bigger of the two elk, and they were traveling together. The calf was left there alone, and that was like opening day, so we got it for five days. Then I think I had two or three days to hunt because the season was like nine days long. We got it for five. I could hunt the last four days of the season. I was hunting around, hunting around, couldn't find a cow, and I thought, oh, I wonder about that calf. Sure enough, I went right back to where the hunter had shot from. I sat there, and before the, the, the sound of the first note of my cow call faded, I heard, and here she comes just running over the hill. And I was like, oh, man, I, I kind of didn't hope for it to work so well. And then, <laughs> so she hadn't joined the herd. She was still like hanging out man i never heard that story so tasty though thank you for sharing i mean a cap like archery season so much easier to pack out so tasty yes yeah one trip yeah here's another one a guy said we were having a conversation on, on on this year uh program we were having a conversation one day where i was talking about some things that didn't in like some forms of hunting, some hunting practices that didn't interest me. Okay? And I cited some examples. We were actually having a conversation about, we were having a conversation about, where I was kind of like putting it to Mark Kenyon a little bit. Like, in so, like, why, what is the difference between having a food plot and having bait out in the woods? Right? And some people say like it's the same exact thing, or some people say it's different. And it, and it brought up this conversation where, um, I was saying that we used to hunt over bait all the time. Then it just became where it's not interesting to me now. And now I don't. And he pointed out like that. Re- he goes, he, he's saying in this letter, he's like, you don't read it this way. But what that reads as is it reads as you condemning and hunting practice that anyone looking in would say like that by saying you wouldn't do it, you're condemning it. And I think that that's like kind of an interesting thing that needs to be prodded at a little bit because it d- I don't feel that I am, right? I'm feeling that, that everyone looks and there's things that you're drawn to and things that you're not. And how could it be held up that if you're not drawn to something and don't want to do something or it doesn't interest you, that there's sort of this, like, this like, implicit condemnation of the activity, which seems like a stretch. Like yeah. It doesn't feel to me that's what I'm doing. And I think it like, just opens up some level of sensitivity on people's behalf, where they feel like you're saying, like, they like to do something, you don't like to do it, therefore you must be saying that they're wrong. If I choose not to play soccer, are you going to think that that means I hate people that play soccer, that I'm condemning the sport? No. Well, in not playing golf, that's what I'm doing. (laughs) (laughs) 
but yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that there's there's nothing wrong with people having different takes on what appeals to us or what lines we draw or whatever it might be. And that's okay. I think it's a good thing that we all have our own different lines of what we feel is compelling, interesting, or even ethical. We all have a different take on some of those things. And yeah, because he's inviting to look at he's inviting one to look at it from the non-hunting perspective, saying like from the non-hunting perspective, people would look and be like, see? You see what I'm saying about those certain practices? These people are don't. signaling that, that it's bad. And maybe his argument is that because because you have a platform. So maybe as someone who who's like a leadership position in some capacity within this community, by saying that you don't, that signals to other people as someone that you know, has a platform, but maybe that's the case. I could better understand that argument, but yeah, I agree. Got one for you, Giannis. Bring it. Um, dudes wanting to know, is it okay to hunt deer with the 223? Why is that for me? Because I think of you as like a, <laughs> um, like a guy that knows about You're definitely stuff. kind of a bullet. He, he, he likes to act like he's not. Yeah, he definitely yeah. is. Yeah. Did you guys see my tattoo? Is that what it makes of oh, the bullets, all of them. I'm joking. Oh, Aww. you know what I forgot to mention? <laughs> Not only is it the solstice, but it's Yanni Day in Latvia, where I think like people named like the singer. No, people named Giannis. People named Giannis celebrate today in Latvia because they're all everybody named- celebrates. It's kind of it's it's weird. It, it, it's it's a summer solstice party, and it just happens to be called Yanni, which is like the Yanni name day. Like everybody in all Latvians have a name day as well. It's kind of nice growing up because it was almost treated as like a second birthday. So you'd get, you want to get quite as many presents, but you get a few, you'd have like a little celebration. Would it, would it no joke be equivalent to, be, to, to there being a Steve day? Yeah, exactly. Dude's name Steve party that day. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But for Yanni day, it's on the summer solstice and yeah, you, you go, you, you have all kinds of traditions that you do. Sing a lot, big bonfires, travel from house to house. With your, you greet all the neighbors, eat. This is going to get a good. This is going to get a good laugh. But you eat a bunch of Yanni cheese, (laughs) (laughs) Um, which is like a. It's kind of bland, but has caraway seeds in it. It's tasty. There's pea doggy usually, which some of you have had, or maybe it's just Steve. I've I've had. Yeah. Um, What else do we do? Yeah, you you do. just, you know, like you were saying about the, the Native Americans, you know, doing things to sort of, you know, whatever, would you say, they move the sun? Yeah, you're like direction. paying homage to the yeah. sun somehow. Yeah, you're, you're, you're sending it back south. Or yeah, very, so for I mean, good luck for the rest of the year, I think you had to get a partner and jump over the bonfire. That was like the highlight. We, when we were old enough, to, when your parents were like, all right, you get to do it this year. It's like, yes, we get to jump over the bonfire. Um, can, you want to know more? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I want you to jump real quick because I thought – the solstice was the day you guys throw molten lead into a bucket of water and then read the future with it. Can you break that down? Winter solstice. Yeah, winter. Yeah, break that you down. You don't want to wait until winter solstice for that? No, I want to talk about it right now. <laughs> yeah, very safe practice. I can't believe our parents were like, hmm. But uh, yeah, we would uh, buy a bunch of fishing weights and probably everybody got a, a bag or so and you'd have an old pot that was used every year for this and you would melt the lead and you'd have a cold bucket of uh five gallon bucket of cold water and you would i think some years i guess we had a ladle but i remember usually just having a small pot and you would dump the pot quickly into the cold bucket of water and it would just turn into a form everybody would go around doing that and you'd sit around and look at this thing 
and then you would um, find a take off a painting off a wall or something, just have a plain Your white hand wall. is doing it right now yeah, on that wall yeah, behind. There you go. And you'd set up a candle, and you just hold the uh, lead figurine sculpture. I don't know what you call it. You didn't sculpt it really, but the form that you made. And uh, with the light from the uh, candle moving a little bit, and then that odd shape, everybody else sits around that's in your group and looks at that shadow and sort of projects your next year. Like, it'd be like, Yanni is going to get a big old buck. Exactly. Right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if it throws a shadow. Yes. Yeah. That's good stuff. Now, back to this 223 thing. Oh, yeah. Uh, I feel you know, I've, never, I've never done it, and I, I'm like, I've never owned a 223, so I, I really can't. Um, I've never killed a deer with a 243. I've seen it done, so I, I know, you know, and it was a nice, quick, clean kill. But 223, I'm sure with the right bullet and the right bullet placement, it could be done. Right um, bullet. Yeah. But there's guys that have killed charging grizzly bears with 22s, but I don't think anyone proposes that that's like a thing that makes sense to use. So when people rely on the, like, I've, like when you hear that argument, well, my brother's cousin, or, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, it's like it's thrown out there all the time. But this dude wants to know. I'm not a gun guy, but the reading I've done on it in the past is that, yes, but it's, you got to be mindful about your bullet choice and your distance. Like, it should be a close range thing only. Because, like I said, I'm not a gun guy. But I think the 223, it's a velocity thing, right, to make that work, to kill a larger game species. So you want to make sure you don't shoot so far that velocity drops off. And we've talked extensively. Uh, Giannis and I both had poor guiding experiences when folks would show up with the 7mm mag. And that was when that cartridge first came on the market and was very popular. And I'm trying to be a grown-up and objective and looking back. It's not that that rifle isn't worth uh, anything. But likely there was not uh, the appropriate ammunition on the market at the time to make that a good killing rifle. Yeah. I, I'm going to leave it at that. Is this dude, I wish I knew if he, was, if he was here, we'd know if he was happy with that or not. Yeah, I think you need to look at uh, velocities, how much energy that projectile is taking to the animal at a given distance so you know what uh, is com- what math says is the correct amount of energy at what distance and have an appropriate projectile for hunting not a target projectile that especially in a 223 case is the most prolific and the least expensive by far yeah I would recommend you go read what Chuck Hawks has to say about it. That is kind of the authority. Like he's a reliable dude, Chuck Hawks. Yeah. And Chuck Hawks is a gun writer who's kind of anti-gun writer, which is helpful. This guy, this is a good one that I don't understand. Used to live in, grew up in Montana, where everyone knows that you skin an animal hanging it from its gambrels, meaning you hang it from its hocks upside down. In Wisconsin, everyone knows that you hang a deer by its neck. Why is this, and who is right? The neck guy, I think. 
Because what we used to do is we would take them and do all the skinning cuts, hang it up by the neck, and then take a golf, then skin the neck down a little ways, put a golf ball in there, wrap a rope around it with a slip knot, hook it to a four-wheeler or a vehicle, and just drive away, and that whole hide squirts right off. Slick. One cannot do that the other way around. So I think that's God's way of saying, <laughs> hang it from the neck. But it's, like, it's that like regional bias. Dude's wondering how, why, the difference. Does anyone have anything to add about that? Have you ever wondered if you could like pull off cowboy boots? Then you should pull on a pair of Tacovas. You will see. They'll become your new favorite footwear. Now we're going to throw it to Chili. If you know him, he is a cowboy boot aficionado. Dude don't like to cross the street without his cowboy boots on. Hear him out. People want to know when to wear Tacovas. Date night. Now, I'm not a very fancy guy, but when I put my Tacovas on, I feel very fancy, and my girlfriend seems to like them too. Now, if you can't make it into a store, Tacovas delivers the most premium quality and most comfortable Western goods right to your door. Visit Tacovas.com. That's T E C O V A S.com and point your toes west as a special opportunity for our listeners. Tacovas has said they will throw in one of their best selling trucker hats or ball caps for free into any minimum purchase of $100 on Tacovas.com. Just use code MEATEATER at checkout. That's about a $30 value, and they sell fast, so they're always updating with new styles and looks. Again, for a limited time, enter code MEATEATER at checkout to add a free logo hat to your order as a one-time gift from Tacovas. only at Tacovas.com. Clean and protect your firearms with Riptide Armory. Riptide Armory's products are military and professionally formulated and approved, featuring a groundbreaking graphene-infused ceramic coating that is safe for all surfaces, providing unmatched protection for any firearm. Discover a new standard in gun maintenance. Order your advanced cleaning kits today at RiptideArmory.com. Riptide Armory relentless performance for your firearms if you've learned anything after years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers it's this there's always a catch so when i heard that mint mobile wireless plans are 15 dollars a month when you purchase a three-month plan i thought no way can't be true But there isn't a catch. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those savings directly to you. All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. You can ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited-time deal and get premium wireless service for just 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash eater. That's mintmobile.com slash eater. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash eater. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. I would guess that if you actually took a, a census and drove around those two states, you'd probably see it's probably split down the middle. In Texas, you could probably go from one ranch, they're all hanging by the neck, go to the next ranch, they're hanging by the hawks. I don't know if that's necessarily true that it's 
one way in the north and a different way in the south. So he like hung out with two people. He hung out one guy in Montana that did it that way, and one guy in Wisconsin did it the other way. And he's like, that's just how they do it in these states. Few enough that I think it's a coincidence. Make it clean, get the meat cooled down fast. I don't care how you do it. Have you got a guy wrote in from Ohio here? Um, and he wanted to know, like, what is up? Why can we not have elk in Ohio? Of the people who are in, from Ohio, how many of you guys would like to see elk in Ohio? It's kind how of many of you would, would not? <laughs> All Ohioans are in. Yeah, it, it winds up being like kind of an interesting story because, of course, elk here, like everywhere, pretty much everywhere else, um, at the time of European contact, you were in the heart of elk country, right? Elk occupied the, almost the entirety of the lower 48. There's like some debate about where the line was drawn around Maine, where the line was drawn, like whether they were down in the Florida Peninsula or not, but they were just everywhere. Everywhere, you know, early English colonists went, many places Spanish colonists went, there was elk. And the thing we always point out is we've only recovered elk on, you know, 90 or so, like, you know, we've only, re- I'm sorry, we haven't recovered elk on something like 90% of their historic range. Elk are absent from most places that elk belong. And someone was saying, like, what's up? Like, why not Ohio? Ohio did a feasibility study. Oh, another interesting thing is, the, are you guys remember the Muscogum River? How do you say it? Oh, because I'm from Muskegon. We don't spell it nearly like that. How do you guys say it? Muskegon. You know what it means? Okay, one dude say it. Muskin gum. So, can you guys hear what someone's saying? I got, I got this. Yeah, just get, let them rip, let it rip. Muskingum. That's what it is. Muskingum. Okay, you know what that means? Yeah. What? Elk's eye. He's right. So many. Because, you know, like, in the old days, a very popular... Oh, yeah, he gets something for that. <laughs> like, if you, read accounts of, if you read accounts of how hunters would hunt in Boone's time, like, a very common way to hunt, like, the early hide hunters, what, how they would hunt was they would burn pine knots in the bows of boats, and they would just hunt at night. Like, you know, Boone, did t- like, Boone hunted a lot with dogs, ran stuff with dogs, and they hunted a lot at night. And they would go out at night, and they would rig up a platform in front of a canoe, and you'd burn pine knots on the platform, and they would just drift rivers that night, shooting deer coming down to drink in the summertime. And they say that that river draws its name from elk's eye. Presumably, you would, when you're drifting down, instead of seeing the eye shine on whitetails that had its own particular dimensions and color, you would tend to see there the eye shine of elk. Your guys, when I say you guys, those of you who are from Ohio, you guys conducted not long ago, you conducted a feasibility study. And it was determined that habitat was pretty scarce in Ohio to have elk, but that there was a possibility that you could have, a, that you guys could support a population of around 400 or less elk. Um, the last elk here, the last place elk were commonly seen, I don't know how to pronounce this either, Ashtabula, that ain't right. <laughs> what is it? They used to be pretty common in that county. (laughs) Uh, As of 1832, they were commonly seen around there. 
the last Ohio's last elk died in that county in 1835. And they did a multi-agency thing to take a look. What if we bring them back to Ohio? What's that going to look like? Kind of scoured the state for feasible locations to pull this off. They looked in southeastern, east central Ohio, and they figured that it wound up being that you could support maybe about 400 elk, which is a lot better than zero. But when they looked at it, there were too many, they, they felt that, the, that there were too many social obstacles to elk reintroduction in Ohio, meaning that you just weren't going to get people on board who were going to deal with agricultural loss and cars running the elk. The Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation took a look at it too, but they, I feel that the way that the, the Elk Foundation has looked at it is like they feel that it has to be 100% commitment because the Elk Foundation has been burned in places where they did a bunch of work to come in they spent a bunch of time in New York working with the DEC to come in and plan a full-scale elk restoration project. And in the end, the state's like, you know what, never mind, and went another direction. Um, they had the same thing in Virginia for a while. Virginia fiercely opposed the idea of restoring elk. And for over a decade, they thwarted elk volunteers' efforts to bring elk back into the state. Then all of a sudden, New Jersey gets a new governor. The new governor appoints a new director. And within two years... Virginia had elk back on the ground. So even though it was thwarted here as being there's too many social obstacles to it, I do think that it's something that you guys should continue to, an idea that you guys should continue to dabble in. Because you look at that map of missing a species, like a valuable species with a lot of, you know, a, a lot of social support and everywhere it's found, and you look and think that you guys could aim towards someday bringing that back here and fill in that map and eliminate some of that 90% of the ground that's absent this big, beautiful, gorgeous animal. I think that as a state, you guys should continue to kick that one around and keep pushing for it and try to overcome the social obstacles that would be in place to put elk on the ground in Ohio. So keep that in the back of your mind as you're drinking cold beers tonight. Um, one final thing I wanted to bring up here, another letter from a person where a hunter's wife wrote in and she's trying to understand why does my old man like to hunt so much? (laughs) And she's saying that he one time was watching a, a buck and he like had to get it, and so he ignored all of his family issues to get this buck. And he finally gets the buck, and she celebrates with him. She's all happy. It's like, finally, we can put this behind us. And they had a wedding reception they had to go to. And she's like, I guess now you're cleared up to go to this wedding reception. Well, my buddy hasn't tagged out yet. <laughs> so she says, please correct me if I'm wrong, but is there ever a point where you have to just put hunting aside. He's married to the wrong woman. <laughs> Someone says he's married to the wrong woman. Do you feel like do you feel that, Giannis? That push and pull a little bit? Like, like you know, if you were on the bars at night, you'd feel guilty. Yeah. But do you feel guilty for being out in the woods? No. <laughs> I don't. Um, 
But yeah, I don't I don't get that from my old lady at all. But again, I, I could probably push it more though. But I feel like I, you know, I'm I'm uh, conscious of how much time I spend in the woods and how much time I spend at home, making dinner, playing with the kids. The kids are now with me a lot in in the woods. Um, I don't think I get that many. I mean, out of 18 turkey hunting days this spring, I might have had two mornings that were by myself. So I had kids and friends and you know family, my wife with me. Um, so yeah, I might only get. 10 days that are like that really to myself i get to hunt kind of hunt for work a lot too so that makes it easier yeah i toy with the guilt all the time but that's why i keep feeling like the real solution to my problem will be when my kids are like you know i have a three-year-old right they're hard to deal with at home but when my kids are all of age i feel like i look forward to the day of enjoying it without even the guilt because once they're all with me, there's like nothing holding me back. It'd just be, it'd be like guilt-free, just utter bliss to be in. It's like everything I want all in one spot, my kids and the woods, you know? And I'm not that far away from that. And maybe you'll invite your wife along. Oh, she's welcome anytime. <laughs> but that doesn't like bring like, I think that she would be just as, like there or not, she would be just as fine with it. Because like as a parent, you carry... Like one, like, like if you're, you know, as a parent, you're like, I need, you, know, you, you need to be with your kids all the time. But then you feel this like sort of like native pull to being outside. And I think that part of the guilt that comes from not being with your kids all the time is that someone's with them. So you also feel like you're kind of like dumping someone with responsibility so you can go enjoy this thing that means a great deal to you. So I think that to alleviate the whole thing just makes sense. Like have your kids out in the woods. When I was growing up, it would be, a, it was a laughable idea that my old man would be out hunting or fishing and you weren't welcome to go along. Laughable. It was just taken as a matter of course that if he was going, you were welcome. But I don't think that everyone runs their program that way. You know, I think there is this sense of people that like, you, like do you want to leave that behind and go out and be out in the woods without your kids? Because they're hard to be around sometimes. It's like it's a struggle with little kids. So I'm, that's just like my answer is to have them be in that little period when they're big enough where you can move them around they're not so big that they that they hate you you know <laughs> yeah like the, the whole peace and quiet and meditating in the woods that that's gone for a while now right yeah my brother took his daughter out caribou hunting and when he came home i was like how'd that go is like what surprised me is that that knowing to whisper when animals are real close apparently is not just like an, a, a thing that people naturally understand <laughs> We said these caribou come up and they're walking by real close and like in everything he feels like it's just like you don't move, you don't make a sound, like everyone just knows this. And his daughter just turns to him and flat out in a rarely conversational voice, wow, look at that, you know. <laughs> and he's like, how could that, I just assumed that was like native knowledge, you know, stored into you. Yeah. Cal, uh, I'm going to just pass you by on this one. Mark? Yeah, every day is pure... <laughs> Unguilty bliss for Ryan. Pawn off one of the kids for some higher learning. You you fish with. <laughs> I'd appreciate that. You like, but you've spent time. You've fished with my kids. Oh yeah, it's hard. It it is uh, very constant. The the uh, I don't even know how to explain it. It's the it. 
yeah, it's just very constant. There is no like drifting off. It's a lot of questions, which is great because you know, like they're paying attention and learning. But yeah, it's it's very full on. Uh, real quick, talk about your experience when we're diving for sea cucumbers with my kid. Because this is a good way of explaining like what is the the, the juggling you do with the kid. Meaning that there's a problem, but you can't admit to the problem. Yeah. So, all right. So, uh, skiff, 13-foot skiff. It's a 16-foot skiff. Or blue boat or red boat? Red, 16, blue is 18. Okay. So, 16-foot skiff. Um, Steve's child is in the front of the skiff. I am in the rear of the skiff. We start off just fine. Steve and his brother Matt are diving for sea cucumbers. Um, I, I feel very comfortable in around the water and safety and all those things, but I have the variable of uh, young James up there in the front of the boat. And when we start off, he's got his his fishing pole, and he's casting around, and he actually catches a rockfish. And the seas are pretty high, so I'm constantly, you know, trying to keep an eye on my guys in the water. So I'm kind of being safety for those guys and keeping this, you know, relatively small boat oriented into the waves so we don't take water into the very small boat. Um, And it is slightly more than I bargained for because the... Watching the guys, keeping the boat oriented. I'm not paying attention to James. All of a sudden, James is like, ur, ur, ur. and I'm like, oh, fish. Oh, no, it's the propeller. And then <laughs> that breaks off, which was a bummer, but not that big of a deal. But the problem was is that I couldn't like get his rod, tie on another lure, and keep the boat oriented and like be safe where we were. And then James was like, is this safe? Is this okay? I'm like, yeah, everything's totally fine. And he's like, okay, great. Tie the lure on. <laughs> and I'm like, well, just hang on a second. Cause I can't. And I'm like, and he's like, well, if you can't tie the lure on, can I get a snack? And I'm like, yeah, get a snack. And he's like, great. Hand me the bag. And the bag, he's in the bow of the boat, I'm in the back of the boat, and the bag is in the middle of the boat, and I'm like, well, uh, man, I can't get you a snack right now. It's like, well, is this safe? Can we be out here? I'm like, well, yeah, it's safe, we're fine. He's like, well, great, hand me a snack. I'm like, well, ah, ah, and that's kind of how the day went, and it was a very... And then we did take a wave over the side of the boat, and Jimmy got drenched, and stuff's floating around, and and it was just constant. Like, is this safe? Is this okay? And it was it was a big day, big day for me. Yeah, uh, and I, I want to get. I, I think the Mark and Mark and Kevin's perspective on this: one, kids or not; two is there ever some reason you should put hunting aside? Because, Mark, you're just entering into it. And, Kevin, you've come out of it. So from the entering into it perspective, 
obligations, balancing it all, racked with guilt. Yeah. But you want to be out in the woods. Maybe you'll bring them. Am I going to get in trouble because it's like real dangerous? Yeah, so all, all sorts of these types of things have been running through my mind for sure. And I think that even just before we had kids, even with my wife, you know, at times I would struggle with some sense of am I – Am I neglecting, you know, my husbandly duties at home, helping out with things, being around, doing things like that? And I'm gone a lot, hunting and traveling and stuff. So, so I think every person, every family has a different like tolerance level. My wife's very, very understanding, but even her, at some point in the year, she always kinds of reach. She reaches some kind of like stress point. Usually, it's like November 16th or 17th. I've been gone three weeks straight, hunting every day, 24, 14 hours a day, or whatever it is. And finally, she's like, "Okay, I need to know I have a husband again." So, so there's always some point like that. So it's always in the back of my mind, like, what am I doing okay balancing that? Am I not? But I, I definitely am not out there not thinking about it. It's, it. It is something that's in the back of my mind and trying to find a way to, you know, fulfill all those obligations. With a kid, I do think that's going to be even more. And I can already feel it. Like, in the past, <laughs> you know, when I'm, when I'm going out for a hunting trip, I'm usually just amped. And, of course, I'm going to miss my wife. But it's not, like, something that's, like, on the top of my mind when I'm heading out the door. Um, I'm just excited for the trip and where we're headed. But now with like my little baby, you know, he's five months old, I'm heading out the door. I'm like, oh, man, I'm going to miss him. And I can imagine that come hunting season when I'm gone for weeks on end and things like that, that, that will be something that's going to be, I'm sure, a new challenge. And as he's growing up, I imagine, too, like when he gets to the age he can talk. Like I've heard friends say, like, oh, man, when they start like saying how much they miss you or when are you coming home or why are you leaving again, Daddy, I imagine that's going to be kind of like a dagger to the heart. And I'm going to have you know, some real figuring out to do. Like, how do I balance this? How do I do it in the right way? But that story that you just shared, Ryan, like, I cannot wait for that with my son. Like, that sounds amazing. To put him at tremendous risk. (laughs) (laughs) With great risk comes great reward sometimes, Steve. They don't don't recognize all the other cool, amazing stuff where I'm like, wow, look at the waves crashing on those rocks. Look at the, like... See, I think they'll the opposite. Amazing stuff, and they're like... I need a snack. <laughs> and I want yeah. a new jig tied on. Yeah, yeah. And I need a new jig tied on, like, pronto, man. Yeah, I could totally see that. I can also imagine, though, like, going out into the woods with a child's eyes again. Like, in, in the things they might be interested in. Like, I head into the woods, and all I'm thinking about is I need to get to the stand without getting winded by these deer, and I need to be super quiet, and blah, blah, blah. And I could just imagine taking my four-year-old out or my three-year-old or whatever he is, and he's going to see a butterfly flying or he's going to see a track or bunny, and, and like he's going to stop and say, Dad, look at that rabbit. In the past, I never would have paid attention or whatever it might be. And I am already looking forward to how cool those moments can be too. So those will be far and few between. Maybe your kid will be a prodigy, and you'll have a few of those every time you go out. But most of the time, it's like, Mud rocks, mud rocks, mud rocks, 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 mud, mud. I, I might be blindly optimistic right now. That's true. <laughs> uh, we when we last summer took our all we last summer took all three of our kids up to our shack in Alaska, and we're having this conversation. Like I'm always like very leery about overpacking. I don't like when people overpack. My wife's like, "Well, they're gonna be all wet. They're gonna get all wet." And I'm like, "Yeah, well, uh, you know, it's Alaska, man. We just wear our clothes dry." She's like, "What does that mean?" I'm like. You get them wet, you don't change all the time. You just wear it till it gets dry. The minute we get there, the two-year-old wades out into the water. And it's cold, you know? And he wades out in the water up to about his navel and comes out. And she's, like, looking at me like the whole wear it dry thing, you know? But then we look, and he'd also shad himself out there. (laughs) It was like, dude, that trip just went downhill from there, man. 
It's just like the things you hadn't accounted for yet. But I've had a lot of ways to know that I like, I've had a lot of ways to know that I've married right. And over 10 years, I know I've, I, I've like married writer and writer and writer all the time. I remember one, the first time I was leaving on a long hunting trip when our kid was an infant. And I remember being, I was sitting in the bathtub, taking a bath with the kids. So I'm sitting there in the bathtub with my boy James on my lap and I'm sobbing because I'm so sad about leaving him like you're talking about. And my wife comes in and says, you better pull it together. And I was like, that, that's the response I want to hear, man. She's like, you're going to give the kid a complex, you know, just go. So I'm like, okay, this father, like, this father thing's going to like at least be livable. Yeah. You know what I mean? Kevin, you got any final thoughts on the whole thing? Like you got kids grown up, gone. Things you should have done different? Yes, because, uh, <clears throat> you know, I was married for 30 years and it come to an end. Uh, <clears throat> wife said she never wanted to see another piece of camouflage clothing. Uh, if I died, I was going to sell all my guns and buy guitars for my boy. And, um, you know, it, it ended there. It, you know, it, a lot of it can be not the quantity of time, but the quality of time spent with your children. That's what they remember. You know, you don't have to be around... 100% of the time or 90% of the time, but, but when you are there due to the job that you may have or whatever, those moments that, that you are with your children, make sure it is a quality experience and uh, they grow up in a blink of an eye and, and they're gone. So. so are you kids hardcore squirrel hunters? We used to have a family tradition of the Murphys going, hunting every Thanksgiving, uh, my son, he would go with us on that day, and that's pretty much it. That was all he cared anything about going is like one day a year. Uh, it it, it kind of hurt me uh, for a long time, but I finally realized, and I looked at some of my other, other friends, and they would have two boys. One of them was an adamant hunter. The other one was not. Uh, we had a professional uh, coon hunt. Uh, in uh, West Kentucky back in the um, spring, I went over with a friend of mine and said, let's go over. I said, they want me to, to guide. And I took a professional photographer over with me and asked him to take some pictures. I said, I think I want to write a story about this, this coon hunt. And so when I went through the door, uh, immediately I saw some of my friends and they came over and started talking to me, just chit-chat. And he was able to go around the room and he took four or five pictures of people that were there that, of course, it was a brand new experience to him. He had never seen anything like that in his life. And he's, and he come back to me and said, Hey, I got some great pictures. I want you to come over here and interview these, these people. So the first, uh, two that I interviewed were, there was two, two guys there. One was 83. The other one was 75 still out coon hunting. And I sat down and talked to them and asked them about their, their first hunting trip. If they could remember how they were, one of them was 8 and 12. Uh, one of them was 8, the other one was 12. Uh, I asked them about, well, who took you hunting there? Neither one of their fathers hunted. They had an uncle that took them hunting. I said, well, you got any siblings that hunt whatever? I said, well, I've got four brothers. And said, I'm the only one that hunts out of that those four. And the other one had like three brothers, and he was the only one that, that hunted out of that. So, And then he said, I've got, I've got children. I've got one that's a hunter. The others are not. So... You know, we, we don't all have that DNA makeup to go out and go hunting there. So, you know, don't feel depressed or whatever, but, but give them that opportunity to go hunt, fish, whatever. Now, my son, he's an avid fisherman. He does like to fish, so he will go fish, and he loves the meat. Um, I had the opportunity to go uh, catfishing in Sandusky Bay 
on uh, Monday. Did you guys know and that your Sandusky Bay is super good for catfish? Yeah. I, I can tell everybody. He threw, Kevin threw back 98 pounds of catfish? No, we, we threw back 93 channel cats, and I would estimate that was probably over 600 pounds of rough fish. Uh, I told my son about it. <laughs> I told my son about it, and he cried. I said, son... <laughs> He, he lives in Lexington. He, he's a, uh, he's, I said, I've got some home in the freezer. He says, it's not fresh. He said, I wanted some fresh fish. I said, I'll, I'll, I'll pick you up. I'll fix you up. But uh, it was outstanding catfishing uh, that, that up there. The best rod and reel catfish trip I've ever been on in my entire life. So if you haven't had the opportunity to go up there and fish, go up there. Uh, we use shrimp, and it was nonstop for six hours. Largest catfish was 14 and a half pounds. I won the big mug, coffee mug for the trip. And uh, the smallest one, we had like maybe four or five that you could have, what we call fiddlers back home. Some people call them whole fries. I would say they probably averaged eight pounds a piece. But it was just an outstanding uh, catfishing trip. All right, let's hear it for Ohio. Let's hear it for Kevin Murphy. Mark Canyon. Ryan Callahan, Giannis Patelis. Oh, Giannis, can you, uh, thank you, everyone, so much for coming out. We're going to go up front, and we'll, we'll sign, uh, sign stuff and do a bunch of pictures, have a good old time. And remember, I gave you, like, a little job you were going to do. Which is? You were going to, like, talk about the, oh, I think they're all gone already. The commemorative turkey poster. Really? Uh-oh. Oh, really? How's that? Now you're rocking. The commemorative turkey poster? They're gone. They're, they all sold out. Thank yeah. you for buying those. And then you can also get yourself a genuine, um, you can get yourself a genuine media podcast T-shirt. And then we have our genuine Bouch shirts. Everyone that looks at those shirts is like it can't be spelled that way. It has to be B L O U C H. But in fact, in real life Latvian, it's Bouch. 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 Not Bouch. Yes. Bluch. B-L-A-U-K-S with the upside down tent. No, the right side up tent. A little middle of mini V. A little right side up tent on there. So check those out. We're going to make our way out to the front. Again, man, thank you very much. Dedicating so much of your time. We've done the show. We've done the show for a long time. I love it. It would not be possible without you guys. I love every one of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Two-thirds of Americans are at risk of experiencing an electrical blackout. You could be one of them, sitting in the dark and cold for hours, for days, maybe even weeks. Are you ready to protect your family? You could be with the Patriot Power Solar Generator 2000X. These things are sweet because this generator has double the capacity and is expandable. Go to 4patriots.com slash meat eater to get your solar generator now. You'll even get a solar panel included free. Go to 4patriots.com slash meat eater. For hunters who are seeking the ultimate edge, Quiet Cat's Apex Pro is the answer. Its unparalleled performance and stealth are designed to enhance any hunt. Quiet Cat is more than an e-bike, though. It's a revolution in how you approach the wilderness, ensuring you can go further and hunt smarter. Save 10% on the Apex Pro and elevate your pursuits when you use code MEATEATER at quietcat.com.